Welcome to The Commentaries, a podcast series from TAN in which you'll learn how to read and understand history's greatest Catholic works from today's greatest Catholic scholars. In every series of The Commentaries, your expert host will be your personal guide to not just read the book, but to live the book, shining the light of its eternal truths into our modern darkness. Visit TANCommentaries.com to get your copy of the book and to subscribe for access to all the great reading plans, new episodes, bonus content, and exclusive deals for listeners of the commentaries. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the commentary series on the Confessions of St. Augustine. I'm Dr. Paul Thigpen, an author and retired professor of historical theology. This is the second episode of our series, and we're using the TAN edition of the Confessions. Today we provide a brief overlook of the book. Then we dive into Book 1, chapters 1 through 19, with St. Augustine's initial insights and questions about God and the soul. As we begin, let's pray in the saint's own words found in this passage. Behold, O Lord, the ears of my heart are open before you. Open them. Amen. So exactly what kind of book is this? The Confessions could be called the first spiritual autobiography of the Christian tradition. Because of this book, the facts of Augustine's early years are better known than those of any other ancient historical figure. Why is it called Confessions? The word confession appears to have multiple meanings here. Augustine was confessing to God his sins, certainly, and that was an extraordinary and humble thing for a fourth-century bishop to do publicly. But Augustine was also confessing in the sense of a confession of faith. He was acknowledging the great dealings of God in his life and the magnificence of God's attributes, thanksgiving and praise for his love and mercy, his knowledge and wisdom, his power and faithfulness, his eternity and transcendent glory. Even so, there's much more here than an autobiography. Augustine views God and the world through the lens of his personal story, as we all do. But in recounting that individual odyssey of a soul traveling from death to life, he ends up examining deeply the mysteries of human existence from the viewpoints not just of theology and devotion, but also of philosophy and psychology. The result? This masterpiece continues after 16 centuries to challenge readers of both a scholarly and a popular audience. Many writers have offered profound insights into all these aspects of the Confessions, but this commentary will be primarily devotional. That is, we'll focus on Augustine's spiritual journey as a source of illumination and understanding our own journey. We'll look closely at what the text reveals about the man, his heart, his mind, his spirit, his vision of God and of the Christian life. The structure of the work is simple. It's divided into 13 books, which have been further subdivided into chapters. In general, books 1 through 9 deal with the author's past life. Book 10 analyzes his current situation as he writes. And book 11 through 13 present a commentary on the first chapter of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We simply don't have time to examine every line of a work that runs more than 140,000 words. Instead, we'll need to be selective, focusing on certain passages 
of intense devotional significance. We'll leave to the reader's leisure the examination of Augustine's profound reflections are largely philosophical and psychological matters. Now let's jump in, at last, to this swiftly flowing river of the saint's thought, at once deeply analytical and exuberantly passionate. St. Augustine, pray for us. He begins, You are great, O Lord, and to be praised indeed. Great is your power, and your wisdom is beyond reckoning. And man, a mere part of your creation, desires to praise you. Man, who bears his mortality about with him, and the testimony of his sin, and testimony that you resist the proud. And still, this man, this part of your creation, desires to praise you. You rouse him up to take delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Eloquent, profound, moving, all in the space of a few words. Where do we begin? The first and most obvious point, Augustine is not writing directly to his human audience, that is to us. He is writing to God, and we are simply overhearing the conversation. You are great, O Lord. And as we read, we eventually realize that not just this opening paragraph, but the entire book is addressed directly to God. The entire book is one long 140,000 word prayer. Who does that? Well, Augustine does that. He is sincerely seeking to confess it all to God, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So why did he even publish the book? Why didn't he just say these words in private to the Lord? In a later passage in Book 2, Chapter 3, he answers that question. To whom am I telling this, he writes. Not to you, my God, but in your presence, I tell it to those of my kind, my fellow human beings, whatever little part of them may happen upon these writings of mine. Mm, if only he knew how vast an audience this work would eventually attract. And why, he goes on, why else but that I and whoever reads them may consider the depths from which we must cry unto you. And what is nearer to your ears than a confessing heart and a life lived by faith? Augustine wrote it all down. He made it all public. He threw open the doors to his most intimate thoughts, his most embarrassing failures, for your sake and for mine, so that we could witness and embrace the depths of agony and the heights of joy to which God calls each of us in our long and winding journey home. A second feature to notice here, in this short opening passage, Augustine quotes or alludes to scripture multiple times. He does it throughout the work. He knows his Bible. He thinks in biblical terms. He speaks and writes in echoes of scripture. He obeys the apostle Paul's injunction to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. We should go and do likewise. Now, Augustine moves from praising God, telling him how wonderful he is, to speaking of the human race and of the man Augustine himself, and then rising again in longing for God. This grand movement from heaven to earth and back to heaven again appears throughout Augustine's work. The exemplar is Christ himself, who descends to earth from heaven and ascends to heaven again. Our life in Christ 
follows the pattern. We're just one little part of his creation, he says, yet still we desire to praise him. We carry around our mortality with us wherever we go, dragging us down to earth. This body's going to give out and we're going to die one day. And we're sinners whose fallen condition bears witness to God's judgment on our presumption, on our pretense that we don't need God, that we can take God's place ourselves. And still, somehow, out of the broken depths to which we have fallen, He stirs us up to praise Him, lifts us up to reach for Him, and even in our blindness we find ourselves seeking Him in the darkness. Why is that? What is the key to unlock our understanding of this miserable longing we endure for something transcendent, something eternal, something far above every created thing that sooner or later passes away as we ourselves must pass away? Why does nothing in this world ultimately satisfy? Because Augustine sings to God, Augustine shouts to God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's the key. And that, I believe, is at the heart of all that Augustine goes on to say about God, about himself, and about the world. Let's go on to read the rest of the first chapter. Here we find a typical feature of the author's thought, what I would call an Augustinian dilemma. Is it this or is it that? Should I do this or should I do that? Or maybe even that. The dilemma is not always resolved. The answer may be all of the above or none of the above, or we can't know in this life, but we place our trust in God. Here Augustine wonders about the beginnings of our life with God. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? He writes, Lord, give me to know, to understand, which comes first, to call upon you or to praise you, to know you or to call upon you. But who could call upon you without knowing you? For without knowing it, he might call upon another instead of you. Or rather, must you be called upon to be known? But how can they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how can they come to believe without a preacher? And more, they shall praise the Lord who seek him. For they who seek him shall find him. And they who find shall praise him. He's alluding here to passages in the biblical books of Romans, Jeremiah, and Matthew. The solution to this dilemma seems to be all of the above. He says, I shall seek after you, O Lord, as I call upon you, and I shall call upon you, believing in you, for you have been preached to us. My faith calls upon you, Lord, the faith you have given to me and breathed in me by the humanity of your Son through the ministry of your preacher. In a sense, Augustine is already introducing to us, in a veiled way, the great dilemma in his thought, the intellectual and spiritual problem with which he wrestled for a lifetime, the mysterious interaction of God's grace and our free will. Our desire for God, our entire life with God from its earliest beginnings, is itself a gift. We seek Him, call upon Him, know Him, believe in Him, praise Him, only because of his gracious initiative. We love him, as St. John said, because he first loved us. Augustine then goes on to the next dilemma. When we call upon God, we ask him to enter us. We invite him into our lives. But God is infinite. How can he come into us? How can he fit inside us? 
Do we receive just a part of him? In fact, the whole universe cannot contain him. Does the universe contain just a part of him? If so, where's the rest of him? At the same time, God created us and all things. Doesn't that mean he is already inside of what he has made? He is all present, present everywhere. Nothing escapes his presence. So why would he invite him into a place where he already is? If all things are in God, isn't God in all things? As the translator notes, Augustine is pressing us here to see that we must not conceive of things only as bodies taking up space. The divine nature is not material, it is not made of matter, so God is not limited to such spatial relations with his creatures. The preposition in must be understood in a different sense here, not one of space, but of relation, of connection, of intimate presence. This thought reminds us of the saint's confession later in the book when describing his life before his conversion. You are with me, he says to God, but I was not with you. Such musings then set us up for a powerful and eloquent confession of the attributes of God in chapter 4. The most striking feature of this passage is the element of paradox that Augustine is famous for, seeming contradictions that, when pondered deeply, are nevertheless revealed to be simultaneously true. In this case, the abundance of paradox presses us to marvel and to confess, along with Augustine, the magnificent mystery of God. Just listen to this litany. What then is my God? asked the saint. Supreme, best, most mighty, most omnipotent, most merciful and most just, most hidden and most immediately present, loveliest, strongest, steadfast and impossible to grasp, unchanging and yet changing all things, never new, never old, making all things new, ever in act, ever at rest, gathering up and never in need, bearing and filling and sheltering, creating and nourishing, bringing to perfection, seeking, though of nothing are you in want. You love, but you do not burn with passion. You are jealous for what is yours, though you are secure in your possession. You regret, though you do not grieve. You grow angry, though you are at peace. You alter your works, but not your counsel. You take up what you find, though you have never lost it. You are never needy, but you are glad in your winnings. You are never covetous, but you exact interest. Men pay and overpay you, that you may be in their debt. And yet, what does anyone have? that is not already yours. You pay debts, though you are in debt to no one. You forgive debts, and you lose nothing. Each of the divine attributes Augustine so eloquently points to us here merits our careful reflection and should provoke us to a response of wonder and worship. I encourage you to spend some time meditating on this passage. Then in our next episode, We'll move into the story of the author's life in chapter 6, beginning with the infant Augustine. I wish I could promise baby pictures, but alas, his verbal portrait will have to suffice. Let's end with a few words of the saint's prayer of confession that concludes chapter 5, echoing the words of the psalmist. Lord, the house of my soul is too cramped for you to enter. Make it more spacious. It is falling to ruin. Repair it. What's inside it offends your sight. I know it, and I confess it. But who shall cleanse it? To whom else but you shall I cry? Cleanse me, O Lord, 
from my hidden sins. Amen, and God bless you. This has been an episode of The Commentaries, a podcast brought to you by TAN. To follow the show, study more of the greatest Catholic classics, and to support the commentaries and other great free content from TAN, visit tancommentaries.com to subscribe and use coupon code COM25 to get 25% off your next order, including the confessions and countless more spiritual works to deepen your interior life and guide you to heaven. Thank you.